1600-KIVA-BQ.FM, rockoftalk.com, straight talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. Glad to be here with you for another Saturday, beautiful Saturday afternoon, right here in the Kiva with the one and only guy who uh, brings it harder, more conversational, and more insightful than maybe any program you hear on radio, save mine, rockoftalk.com. But appreciate Jeff, as always, finding new and interesting guests, and uh, thanks to all his friends, relationships, that he's cultivated over the last 30 years and uh, inviting them right here into the Kiva for a little conversation. Jeff, take it away. Thank you again, Eddie Aragon, for not only producing the show, but helping uh, really mentor me uh, during my early days of radio. So thank you, Eddie Aragon, owner of Kiva 1600 AM, for producing Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. We're with you every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. Tell your friends about Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelari, because no cliches, no platitudes. We really try to dissect uh, interesting content with interesting guests, uh, really that vary the full spectrum of what's called the human experience. And with that, uh, let me introduce a friend of mine. I've known Gail for a couple of years now, probably three years. We've done business together. We have become friends. She is a doyen. She's known as the doyen of death. And don't be scared. It's not spooky, folks. It, you'll, you'll understand as we continue to dissect this interesting discipline called thanatology. So Gail Rubin is also a certified thanatologist. She is known as the doyen of death. And we're going to talk about the, the sober uh, construct called death with Gail Rubin. Welcome to Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. Great to be with you, Jeffrey. All right. So let's start firstly with what is a thanatologist. So thanatology is the study of death, dying, and bereavement. And we get that term from the Greek demigod Thanatos. Not to be confused with Thanos from the Marvel Universe, but Thanatos, which is the personification of a good death. His twin brother is Hypnos, which is sleep. So sleep and a good death are very closely related. Okay, so we get so much uh, art, literature, philosophy from our friends, the Greeks, mm-hmm. uh, from Sparta, Athens, up in that area, Macedonia. I know a bit about Greek uh, history. What, what is, from their perspective, the Greeks, what is a good death? How would you describe what you think their perspective of, of a good death is? Peaceful and pain-free, I would say. Okay. As opposed to death by the god of war, you know, if... Bellicose. Yeah, with blood and guts and gore. <laughs> it's interesting because as a someone who was brought up under, under the dogma and the doctrine of Catholicism, we have a prayer to the Virgin Mary called, you know, the prayer to the Virgin Mary. And it oh. at the conclusion of that prayer... It talks about a peaceful death as well. So mm-hmm. apparently, the hour of our death. Yes. Yeah. But it's really about a peaceful, mm-hmm. you know, a peaceful transition mm-hmm. to something called God, which is something we all hopefully want to ultimately be with. So the point is, ultimately, different cultures have that construct of a peaceful death. They just express it in probably different ways. Mm-hmm. So when you became a thanatologist. You had to go through a certain disciplinary certification, that kind of thing? Yes. Talk a little bit about that. So I'm certified through the Association for Death Education and Counseling. And this is something where I had to prove that I knew what I was talking about to get a couple of letters of recommendations from people in the funeral industry is who I called upon 
to um, show that I could talk about death in the construct of what ADEC has as this body of knowledge that involves you know, sociology, emotional, psychology, um, cultural references, things like that. And once a year, in fact, it's always the first Saturday of November, which is usually Day of the Dead. Uh, in fact, when you have to take a test, an online test. And they only give it once a year, and um, I took mine on November 2nd. Yeah, many years ago. So. so speaking of the Dia de Muerte, I think that's how you pronounce it. Dia de los Muertos. Dia de los Muer- Muertos. Ooh, My yeah. Spanish should be better. Roll Latina it. Candelaria. At any rate, my guest is Gail Rubin. She is a known as the Doyen of Death and also is a thanatologist. And we're talking about, uh, you know, a very sober a human experiential construct called death. But uh, it's important that we transparently talk about it because, you know, we deal with, with death all the time and ultimately all of us have to deal with it you know directly at any rate despite great advances in medical care humans do still have a 100 percent mortality rate yeah but your point that even that dia de muertos that uh, that whole thing in mexico and parts of central america that culture looks at death extremely differently mm-hmm. than over the last 120 years when america especially through Wall Street, I mean, through uh, Saks Fifth Avenue, they put all these commercials, these these movies, this pop culture, and, and almost everything up until fairly recently was always about youth, sex, and money. Mm. And it was the an, an, you know, an, antithesis, antithesis yeah. of, of kind of what your discipline well, of death, age. right? Yeah, of, of, <laughs> you of know, even hopefully age. Hopefully we age, right? you know, get to die at Young a people die, of age. course, but, yeah. but I'm just saying all that we've learned over the last hundred years and been exposed to and been, you know, what, what is promulgated in pop culture is really the antithesis of what you, what you deal with as a discipline. Well, in Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead, we're looking at celebrating our ancestors, people who have died before us, and um, the movie Coco, the animated film, is a wonderful illustration of the whole philosophy behind that, which is you remember your ancestors. You put their photos up on a special altar and you offer food and drink that they liked in life as a way of remembering them and celebrating them and welcoming them to come back for a visit. In fact, it's not just the Mexican Central America culture, but also the Celtic culture we get halloween in ireland ireland yep that um the veil between the worlds of the living and the dead are the thinnest on october 31st okay and that's why you know you get the ghosts and whatnot associated with halloween but it's also connected to this idea that this is the time of year when our loved ones who have died can come and visit yeah you know halloween has always been a strangely fascinating holiday for me as well uh, i don't really care for other holidays much i never i've been a fan know. of it since i was a kid and when i was a kid no. you know we decorated with headstones on our front lawn and yeah. played the spooky music but we were way I, ahead i have of a skeleton else. and multiple ghosts and you know in my house in our front yard and <laughs> my wife had no interest in, in in that but i i put it together well she helped me of course but i have a weird fascination with the macabre anyway. Mm-hmm. Straight talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. <laughs> but, you know, Halloween re-reminds us of 
death in a way, mm-hmm. but the way we've really put it forth as as a society in America is we we kind of have fun with it, mm-hmm. you know, through the costumes and almost a suppressed desire kind of thing. You can dress in an outfit that maybe you 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 your alter ego of, or you're right. yeah, what you'd uh, like to be, yeah. But it's also you know scary. We're expressing horror films are very big this time of year and related to Halloween. Uh, and I think that's an expression of our fear of death. Yeah. And it's interesting you say horror because I've noted, and this is just an a- anecdotal survey I've taken, but about 60% of folk don't like horror movies and about 40 do. And I think that's also a reflection of maybe certain aspects of our population don't want to be reminded of the inevitable and want to be distracted from the inevitable. Is that a possibility? Well, you know, I'm not a fan of horror movies myself. I think the last one I saw was Alien. And I was like, I was so shook up by that. The original Alien, 1979, with uh, Sigourney (laughs) Weaver. Yes. And John Hurt, I think it was. Wow, that was 1979. I saw that at a drive-in with my then-girlfriend. I remember that. But the scariest movie that now, if you see it, it, it may not come across as horrifically uh, scary, was The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. I saw in a theater with my then best friend, Mark Barella, with an actual priest who took us both. We were at St. Charles School, and he took us to see The Exorcist. Can you imagine seeing a, a horror movie like that with a priest? With a priest? Oh, my god! Scared gosh. the hell out of me. <laughs> I slept with the lights on for about three weeks after that. I mean, it's still the scariest movie I've ever seen. But uh, at any rate, let's get back to thanatology. And so you're also known, Gail Rubin, uh, Jeffrey Candelaria, uh, Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. We're talking about death with a person who actually does, as a career and a living, uh, deal with death, literally. Why are you known as the doyen of death, and what is a doyen? So a doyen is, that's a French term for a woman who is senior in a group who knows a lot about a particular subject. Okay. So I've been doing this for 11 years now, and my motto is talking about sex won't make you pregnant, talking about funerals won't make you dead. And I've been doing this 11 years, so far so good. Right. I have planned ahead for myself and my husband, uh, and I teach people about planning ahead for end-of-life issues. So we've got wills and a trust for my husband and I, even though we don't have kids, but being prepared as to what's going to happen to your earthly assets once you're gone. If you don't do the official paperwork, the state is going to take over the distribution of your assets. And your stuff might go to somebody you have no intention of benefiting. Uh, Also, advanced medical directives. Our medical system is quite remarkable. It can really save your life. But if you're at a point in your life where you don't want to be kept alive with artificial means or resuscitated if your heart should stop. You need that paperwork and a person to speak on your behalf to let the medical profession know that this is what they said they wanted, you know, and get that for you when you can't speak. So, yeah. And then, of course, uh, estate planning, uh, financial planning, and then funeral planning. People do not like to go to funeral homes. And my advice is that's the time to visit is when nobody's sick or dying. 
But unfortunately, people don't look at it like a consumer issue where you should go shop around ahead of time. And uh, that's one of the things, one of the many services I offer as, as an informed advocate to go and help you get over your hesitancy and offer insights so you can uh, pay my, less. My guest is uh, Gail Rubin, and she's a thanatologist. Straight talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. To your point, then, these are some of the more practical, prosaic matters that people have to invariably deal with. My grandfather died with $300 in his bank account, and that's a different story. But he didn't really have much planned. I mean, there was a, a little bit planned, but little things like canceling his Social Security check was mm-hmm. kind of became a big issue. And I, I had to kind of do some of this with my my uh, my aunt Vicky. Uh, but it was it was pretty difficult because some of the paperwork that he had was in disarray. Mm-hmm. And I probably should have done a better job of helping you know organize that. But but today because of technology. And this is part of what you help people orchestrate. If someone, God forbid, dies suddenly and they're your spouse, your uncle, whatever, they also have things called passwords, mm-hmm. right? And that can be, you want to talk even about oh some my of God. the technology. And if you don't know a deceased's a, a, you know, password, yeah. oh, that can be you know, a con- convoluted mess. Yes. I, I tell people if you're going to be in charge of planning a funeral for somebody or preparing the death certificate, there are five key elements you need to know. Mother's maiden name, place of birth, date of birth, uh, if their social security number, of course, and if they're a veteran, where are the DD-214 papers because you can get a burial plot from the federal government for free for your service for, for the veteran and their spouse. But you die and take your passwords with you, your loved ones are in so much trouble right. trying to get into your phone, trying to shut down your credit cards. If you've got ongoing subscriptions tied to your credit card, those those will keep getting charged unless you have the password and the ID information to get in and shut down accounts. See, these are the prosaic details that can mm-hmm. really entangle and become such a convoluted mess, as I said earlier, if we don't really anticipate all the you know, the, 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 the details of life, the devil's in the details, literally. Mm-hmm. And that happened to a friend of mine. That person died, unfortunately, you know, suddenly. Mm-hmm. I, I know people die suddenly. I know that can be debated semantically. But anyway, unanticipated death. Mm-hmm. That person's wife had none of his passwords. Consequently, he got hacked while all this was happening. Oh, no. And so now there was another layer of, you know, disarray on top of everything else, to your point, mm-hmm. because she hadn't, and, and why would she? They were young, mm-hmm. relatively speaking, in their 30s, anticipated his death, no passwords. And it, be, it took them a year because he also, because of that, identity theft happened. Exactly. So. Yeah. And with social media, I mean, how many of us know somebody who died who had a Facebook account that's still active and their birthday comes around and Facebook is reminding you to wish this dead person a happy birthday? You don't want to put your friends through that, really. Yeah. Uh, so what I recommend is have a spreadsheet. I, I prefer a paper-based system that's not on your computer necessarily, but, uh, but there are ostensibly you know, secure password uh, lockers that one could use with one master password to keep all of your passwords 
safe and available. You just need the master password. Yeah, and this is part of the service that you provide and you help orchestrate because when one goes to a funeral director, they don't necessarily handle these prosaic details, these mundane details, right? right they're right. they're going to deal with you know the the remains and and all of that, the mm-hmm. grieving and all that. But some of this paperwork stuff. All of us have paperwork at- attached to our lives, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And sometimes it can be very complex. And if we don't anticipate letting our spouse or our power of attorney know, these are 29 things you should know about Gail Rubin. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, plus when you say what you should know about someone is the obituary. Now, obituaries in the newspaper are very expensive. And it's one of those things that a lot of people don't think about ahead of time. Uh, a very small Albuquerque Journal photo and a couple of lines of text can run $250 a day or more. And then you see these, you know, multiple column inches life stories appearing. That's thousands of dollars. And um, when you pre-plan, you can add money in to prepaying. And by the way, if you're, I, I highly encourage everybody Put your information on file with your favorite funeral home. You don't have to prepay. Um, So that's what my husband and I have done. And they'll tell you, but the prices are going to keep going up. And it's like, okay, so the prices will keep going up. If you wanted to prepay and lock in today's prices for what the funeral home controls, you can do that by buying an insurance policy that names the funeral home as the beneficiary. But you can also buy final expense insurance policies that um, would pay a beneficiary who would then turn around and use that money to carry out your funeral arrangements. So it's a pot of money to take care of those final expenses. And I'm also licensed to do that. <laughs> My guest is Gail Rubin. She is uh, known in in not really a provocatively macabre way, but you don't mean the doing of death in that in those. I'm not killing way. people, no. right? <laughs> but I'm just saying when you when you position that mm-hmm. that motto, you know, some might be wow. Well, I'm death. very knowledgeable about a whole range of yeah, things. and I, yeah. I think that's the point of why I wanted to have you on the show. It's not just so my grandfather died. Are we going to put him in a coffin, or you know, or is he going to be uh, uh, cremated? I mean, you you have to really whoever you is. I always say whoever you is because you know, people say you. All of us have to deal with all these details, all these complexities of someone's demise. Mm-hmm. In the final analysis, it's going to be an attorney. It's going to be a power of attorney. It's going to be the wife. It's going to be the daughter. It's going to be someone. And then the funeral director person is only one component mm-hmm. amongst many with this thing called hu- the human demise. Yeah. And I just recently, I'm also a certified funeral celebrant. So somebody who stands up in front of the dearly beloved gathered here to celebrate the life of that person. And my approach is to focus on the person and the relationship with the family. I just had the um, honor to help a family whose mother died by suicide, overdosed on pills, and she had a long history of mental illness. So letting the family, especially the granddaughter, know that, Mental illness is not a moral failing. And to be kind to yourself for all the family there thinking, oh, I, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda thoughts. 
but yeah. also to to celebrate the good points. And um, so taking a, a bad situation like that and being able to make it a healing event is is very important for the family. Yeah. And in fact, they were very happy with what we wound up with. Yeah. So again, my guest, Gail Rubin, a thanatologist, we're talking about death. Uh, we're talking about the pragmatics of death as well, not just the emotional components of death with Gail Rubin, Jeffrey Candelaria, Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria, which is interesting because when people can die in a myriad of ways, I mean, literally, you can think of a thousand plus ways to die. There, there's and, a TV and show people, about that. And, and people do. <laughs> yeah. But again, getting back to something you said, that's really a, a cogent point. When someone dies of suicide or drug overdose or in the act of raping somebody, some horrific way like that, now there's this element of shame mm. that all of us would probably experience, the survivors, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So now that's a very different way of dealing with death because not only did you lose little little Joey who committed suicide, Died by drug. suicide. So the Don't law, say committed. Well, whatever. Okay, well, <laughs> died by suicide. Right. Good. Good. Very good. You corrected a semantic point. That's why it's straight talk with Jeffrey Candler. No problem. <laughs> but, but again, getting back to what I'm saying, mm-hmm. you're dealing with a death. It's it's a sudden, unanticipated death, and then there's also that layer of shame. So you, yeah. as a thanatologist, can kind of help, in a sense, bring some. I don't know what the word is. Calm, peace recognition of some kind of processing process with with the um with the certified funeral celebrant process now i'm not a grief counselor um and so there is a difference you know what's the distinction well i'm a death educator i'm i'm bringing a light touch to what many consider a dark topic Uh, a grief counselor would be somebody who sits down with a bereaved person who is maybe having trouble processing their grieving and uh, would be trained clinically to to help that person either with talk therapy. The emotional, drugs. psychological aspect. Yes, yeah. 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 Okay. Although a good funeral service helps move that along. Yeah, know? right. That makes sense. Again, folks, we're talking about uh, death in a very pragmatic way, in a very, you know, kind of, mundane prosaic way because sometimes you have to deal with mundane prosaic prosaic details my guest gail rubin she's a thanatologist she's known as the doyen of death jeffrey candelaria straight talk with jeffrey candelaria the other thing that's interesting to me about death i have a curious mind i drive my wife crazy but (laughs) that's why i do this show yeah anticipated death versus a sudden death Mm -hmm. so like my mother died in a car wreck 29 uh, 30 years of age very healthy Two minutes later, dead, done. Versus someone has cancer, they're 83 years old, they've been sick for two years. Not that one is less difficult or poignant than the other, but anticipated versus sudden. There's definitely a different grief reaction. Uh, Certainly with sudden death, you're going to be uh, numb, actually. You, You go into an emotional shock. And that's actually self-protected because uh, sort of like your body goes into shock when you have a, um, you know, a bleeding incident or something. You're, it's actually self-preservation. 
So you might be kind of sleepwalking through a sudden death, funeral, and arrangements and whatnot. So that is not a good time to be, you know, planning a funeral, which is why I highly encourage people to shop around, plan ahead, talk about it, write it down, be proactive about what you want done with your body, maybe what you want done for a celebration of life, the new name for a funeral or memorial service, uh, which can be uplifting. They can be happy, but there needs to be space for tears at a celebration of life also, because otherwise it's a party without purpose. Yeah. Because we're there to mourn the loss as well as celebrate the life. Straight talk with Jeffrey Candler, Gail Rubin. And again, based on what you're saying, because I lived it, I remember I was 10, I didn't grieve. Uh, back then, there wasn't really grieve, uh, bereavement counseling for a kid. Plus, my grandparents were stoic Catholics, mm-hmm. so everything was clandestine and don't say anything and da-da-da. And it was very, you know, obviously it was tragic. I was in the car with her. but and, and by the way, I refused to be a victim of that. But the point is, I'm still... I never did grieve over my mother. I'm still, mm-hmm. again, because this is straight talk with Jeffrey Candler, and I try to be very open about everything, I'm still pissed off about her death. Mm-hmm. I'm still not, re- I have not reckoned it in my mind or my emotional state. And it's, it, you know, it, it plays out in a lot of my intensity and anger. Mm-hmm. But like Batman, I use my anger for good. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to be flippant. I'm just mm-hmm. saying bereavement wasn't really a discipline or really kind of a, a thing until somewhat recently, wouldn't you say, the last 30, 40 years, maybe? Yeah, and in fact, here in Albuquerque, we have the Children's Grief Center. It didn't exist when you were a kid, but it's been around for a good long time, and uh, they're doing great things with helping kids who you know lose a loved one. Uh, and I think it's important, and they're also held, helping adults, by the way. So Yeah, because, <clears throat> excuse me, and by the way, I'm going to have the executive director of that that entity on my show in a couple of months. Jade? Yeah. Jade Block. 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 Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, and I've, I've thought about this uh, pretty extensively, when kids lose a mother, especially a single mother, mm-hmm. there's a sense of betrayal. Mm. Now, it's not fair mm-hmm. to the mother mm-hmm. from the kid's perspective. It's almost a very, it's almost an Oedipus complex. When Freud talked about the first person you're in love with is your mother, mm-hmm. the first person who rejects you from her breast mm-hmm. is your mother, so you're always wanting to come back and seduce that love. That's very Freudian. Mm-hmm. Only on Straight Talk with Jeffrey <laughs> Candelaria. But anyway, so there's that. The point is, everyone has their own perspective about a, a singular person that dies in a family or a community. It doesn't mean that everyone monolithically has the same feeling about it, right? Oh, no, yeah. The the reactions to death are, are very wide-ranging. I mean, you go back to the Kubler-Ross initial um, survey of people who were dying in the hospital, and their reactions range from anger, denial, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And it's not, that's not a process. Those are different reactions. Not everybody's going to react in any, all of those ways, some of those ways, but anger is very much a common reaction. And denial, because it's, and prob- denial, it's yeah. probably a combination of the two. Mm-hmm. But to your getting back to that formulation, which I have, happen to believe 
very much in. I think it's a five part. Is that what it was? Yeah, five. five. Anger, denial, bargaining. But some depression. folks, like perhaps me or others, mm-hmm. can be can can station themselves in one of those dynamics and stay there and stay there. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's so actually it, it, called complicated grief. Okay. Because it's so long lasting. Yeah. That um, the idea is that eventually you will come to terms with the loss. The loss is still a loss, but it it's. It's not going to overtake your emotions. Um, it's more of a grief is is like waves. It's not linear. It, something will set you off, and you'd be crying, you'd be angry, uh, and then eventually it fades and you go about your life. Yeah. But then there's something that could trigger or set off an emotional reaction right. to that loss, and it. It sounds like being in love, <laughs> in a way. <laughs> so uh, my guest, Gail Rubin, thanatologist, we're talking about death in a very pragmatic way, in a very sober way, uh, with Jeffrey Candelaria, straight talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. Another phenomenon about death that's interesting to me, and maybe it's a cultural issue, Americana, it seems like when one person dies, like that poor young lady that died in, uh, what was it, the Utah, uh, I forget her oh, name. Oh, out in Wyoming? Remember she was strangled? by that? Yeah, Gail. Yeah. So, you know, much of the country was fascinated by that death. Mm-hmm. But yet in Israel or the Middle East, every week I read 30 people slaughtered mm. with a bomb. One person dies, it's a tragedy. A thousand people die in a newspaper clipping, it's a statistic. Right, right. Is it because the human experience, Homo sapien, it's harder to grasp multiple, like a multiple death situation versus Joey Montano or, or, you know, Abraham Lincoln. or Yeah, it's the whole idea of putting a face on death. So, you know, one person and that person has died as opposed to 700,000 people plus who have died of COVID in this country over the past 18 months. It's a statistic. It's a statistic. It's a number. Well, my my mom's cousin's husband, Ed, 81 years old, fully vaccinated, they went on a trip. They both got COVID. He had had leukemia. So like Colin Powell, he, he, he was hospitalized. He was intubated and he died. He had a core mo- morbidity. Yeah. yeah. The, but still, I mean, you got died and yeah. Cancer reduces your immune but just, response. You know, yeah. For my listeners, just again, straight talk of Jeffrey Candelaria, you read a thousand people die in Israel, car bomb. And it's like, God, oh, that's really bad. But then your cousin Johnny dies. Mm-hmm. And it's it seems like you're saying because you're it's a personal individualized life mm-hmm. with a face and a a, a series of remembrances of right. that person. Exactly. It's just an it's it's an ironic, it's a paradox. I guess mm-hmm. this thing called mass death. Well, and when you look at the all the white flags that were put on the National Mall about all the people who had died of COVID. Uh, that really starts to bring the reality home, the enormity of it, when you when you see it graphically portrayed like that. Right. But just numbers, it kind of gets lost. Well, World War II, something like thirty to forty million people died mm, yeah. in World War II. That's a that's a staggeringly high number, a colossal number. But how do you individualize forty million people that died in the space of of a six to seven year period? Yeah. It's almost impossible to do that. Or the or the Black Plague in uh, 1046 A.D. 
Help me, Gail. No, I, I don't remember the I believe it is. Date. This is Jeffrey Candelaria. 1046 AD. Yeah. One third of, Europe, of Europe died. Yeah. 30 million people died within a couple of years. And so that kind of a pandemic, I mean, not that this isn't a serious pandemic, but you're talking about 30, you know, one third of Europe was wiped out yeah. in about a three year period in yeah. uh, the 11th century. My guest, Gail Rubin, thanatologist, we're talking about uh, death. In a very sober, practical way, on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candler. So why, in our culture particularly, do we have such a reticence about talking about death? Superstition that, oh God, if I talk about it, it's going to happen sooner rather than later. But also self-esteem. There, there's a uh, sociologist named Ernest Becker who created a, um, an approach to looking at this called the terror management theory. The theory being that death is the ultimate terror. So we manage it by um, figuring out ways to be immortal, either literally or figuratively. So literal immortality, you have kids, you write books, you make YouTube videos, you build buildings, uh, monuments. Uh, You become a part of a tribe, either a... um, a country, football team, whatever. Then there's um, the other way, which is more spiritually aligned, that we look at ourselves as immortal, as, you know, this physical body is just carrying around our immortal souls, uh, reincarnation. So those kind of ideas. But not everybody has what it takes to recognize that, yes, I am going to die. Uh, I am not afraid of it. And a lot of people are afraid of it. Even though 100% of us are going to die, less than 30% of us do any end-of-life planning. So 70% of our culture does not... Plan to die. (laughs) Does not... Wow. (laughs) And and that's going to leave, you know, those 70% in a heap of trouble, you know, looking for the passwords, trying to find the information to put on the death certificate, even figuring out, do they want to be buried or cremated or what? Or donated to science. Gail Rubin, uh, Jeffrey Candelier, straight talk with uh, Jeffrey Candelier. So getting back to this almost abstract notion of egocentric mankind wanting to perpetrate a legacy that lives forever by building monuments, writing books, building this perpetual legacy so I don't die, the Mm -hmm. name lives on kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like King Henry VIII named, wanted a, you know, wanted a a King Henry VIII Jr. Never did get around to it. Beheaded three wives, I think. Uh, First was uh, Anne Borlin. Anyway, we're we're going off on a little bit of a tangent, (laughs) but the point is we want most of us, because of our ego, to have a name that lives on forever. Mm Mm-hmm. And and some might even say that people build certain religious constructs or sects, S-E-T-S, mm-hmm. to perpetrate this notion of if you join this group or tribe to your, to your thought, we will live forever. Not with your body, but your, you know, I happen mm-hmm. to believe the spirit will mm-hmm. live eternally in myself. But, I mean, religions are mostly based on the, the essence of mm-hmm. your eternal through God. Well, and it's very interesting. I um, 
you know, I'm doing this Before I Die New Mexico Festival next weekend, uh, starting October 30th. And we've got four days of sessions uh, talking about a lot of things you need to know before you go. But one of them is with a nationally renowned psychic named Tammy Holmes called the Woo Woo Side of Death. And she channels the spirits that want to talk to their loved ones here in the physical world. And she actually came through Albuquerque, oh, about a month or so ago, and we went to historic Fairview Cemetery. One one of the other things I do is I'm president of the nonprofit for that cemetery. And there are some very renowned people who are buried there. She came and we did videos there, and I was not anticipating this, but she did readings of the deceased, some of the remarkable deceased people buried there, including Ruth Hannah McCormick Sims. She was a congresswoman and met Albert Sims, who was a New Mexico congressman. Yeah, the Sims building, I think, was named. Yeah, oh, they had a huge impact on this so town. So what, what, was, what was the reason for her reciting... Or you know this this uh, she actually channeled Ruth. Oh, she did. Yeah, and talk and about how proud she is of Albuquerque, and talk about. So for a listener, channeling means you're making a constra a contact with a spirit who's you know obviously not of this place called of this physical lifetime. Yes. And there's a there's according to what you're saying, there's a, a communication. Mm-hmm. And that we live on beyond our bodies. What's the distinction between that kind of communication conduit and something called a seance? Well, a seance is is more, um, I guess, structured, that um, you've got a group of people around a table calling on the spirits. Yeah. Uh, But in this case, we were just out in the cemetery. Um, The two of us and my husband was checking, running the cameras, uh, and she was just channeling what was coming through. Do you think such a construct, a seance, or what you described, is plausible? Do you, I mean, is it does it happen? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. I think so. Because I think it's a little bit arrogant sometimes when we think that we know everything about everything, you know, in this pragmatic place called the physicality of Earth. Right. Because I think we can be kind of arrogant. We, the people about, oh, no, seances are witchcraft, or you can't channel this, or there are no extraterrestrials, or no, there's no ghosts. I mean, because we have a certain, I think it it represents that certain sense of, I don't want to think about any of that because it's beyond my control. Yeah. And it it comes back to the ego not wanting Mm -hmm. to know that there's something beyond our own individualistic powers. It's the human arrogance Mm -hmm. of Homo sapiens. Yeah, and... um. Uh, listening to Tammy, it's it's just very remarkable what she can feel and express from beyond the veil, as it were. And if you go to Historic Fairview Cemetery, you'll see a, a number of the old headstones have carved drapery. It's actually rock that's been carved to look like uh, a, a, a veil or a blanket draped over the headstone. Yeah, And that's Kind of that idea of the veil that separates the living yeah. and the dead. Yeah. My guest is Gail Rubin. She is the doyen of death and a, thanatolo- a thanatologist. We're talking about death here in a very pragmatic way on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria, a topic that isn't usually brought forth in mainstream uh, dialogue or conversation. But it's something we have to in- invariably deal with, all of us. At any rate, 
I always thought it was a bit macabre as a young person putting someone who's dead into a very expensive thing called a vessel, called a coffin, Casket. and then just yeah. like opening it up and then people kind of just look at this dead piece of flesh. I know that sounds yeah. a bit uh, uh, maybe disrespectful. I'm not trying to be, but I never cared for that kind of experience for the dead person and or for the family. I mean, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be cremated and you can, you know, I don't care what, it doesn't mean anything to me after that, but different ways of interring bodies, that's changed, right? Before 1989 or something, something like 80% of all Catholics did the coffin thing. Mm-hmm. But but talk about the different changes in how we can inter, inter you know, a corpse. One of the big changes that we'll be talking about at the Before I Die Festival, uh, I've got a session on Abraham Lincoln's impact on embalming and funeral service in the United States. Embalming was just coming into vogue during the Civil War. and So this is 1865? Yes, uh, or a little earlier than that, because a number of the soldiers in the Civil War actually would, uh, or their families would pay for a certificate to pay for that soldier to be embalmed and shipped back home. And usually it was the northern troops, the, the Union troops, because it, it costs. So a lot of the southern families didn't and have the, the money And the embalming for that. process retards decomposition retards of the body. decomposition, and the, the railroads would not ship bodies that were unembalmed because they, you know, they so float, the they gen- smell. So that's the genesis of embalming. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. To preserve the body, um, the modern so that, embalming, you so know, as mo- opposed to the Egyptians back in yeah, of course, yeah, that's yeah. mummification. Yeah, but in our world, mm-hmm. uh, around 1864-ish, mm-hmm. during the height of the Civil War, by the way, almost 700,000 people perished in that war. Yeah, but uh, the Union folks, because the moms and the dads wanted to see little Johnny, you know, and most of those people were very young, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. The Union and the rebels, yeah. particularly, were 14 years of age sometimes, so they wanted to see the remains. But you couldn't and do it them. unless they were embalmed. So that's where right. the embalming process. Right. So embalming and started. the United States was huge on embalming and the rest of the world, not so much. But that's been catching up in uh, the late 1800s. Cremation is starting, but it's it's a fringe movement until you get to about 1980. Uh, in the early 1960s, maybe 2%, 3% of Americans were choosing cremation. Now it's about 68% nationwide. Here in New Mexico, you're in the mid-70% people choosing cremation. Yeah, because I think yeah. also the Catholic Church until Vatican II. Vatican II allowed cremation, Yeah, but it wasn't until... Just a few years ago, the Vatican actually issued a dictation. An edict or proclamation. Edict, yeah, that um, you can be cremated, but you need to give those remains a permanent final resting place. A vessel, in a, a in, a, in a niche. Yeah. You know, you can't keep them at home. You, you can't, can't scatter, scatter them. them into the no, woods. right, right. Catholics are always uh, micromanaging even <laughs> life and even our death at any rate. Great talk with Jeffrey Candler with Gail Rubin. So Vatican IV was 64, I think. But our interpretations and attitudes about how we deal with our remains and our loved ones 
have changed and are in mm-hmm. a constant state of flux. Mm-hmm. So again, getting back to the the uh, so the Kennedy assassination sixty three was patterned after Abraham Lincoln's uh, you know funeral. Remember because they yeah. paraded they paraded him with a flag draped around the coffin with the horses. Yep. But he was in the then, backward boots. And yeah. then and then he was. Uh, in the uh, interred in Arlington National Cemetery. But I mean, the viewing yeah. was like two or days or three days. Like literally, a million people saw yeah. both Kennedy and Lincoln. Yeah. So that whole thing of exposing a corpse, I think, is what you're saying. Well, and putting the body yeah. on display. You know, on display. Yeah. Though, yeah, the idea is that would drive home the reality of the death. And some people really do need to see a dead body to believe that person is dead. Did Elvis really die? Right, right. <laughs> and I'm and, not being flippant. I'm just yeah. saying, you know, people want to, did Bruce Lee really die? Well, like in the Jewish tradition, you don't put the body on display. It's considered disrespectful of the vessel that once held the earthly I knew spirit. You should have been Jewish. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah. But I'm like serious. my brother-in-law, who is an art teacher... Um, a friend of our family died, and he went to the funeral, but because it was closed casket, he was expecting this woman to come walking in to the service because seeing the box didn't do it for him. Interesting. See, seeing the body, you know, some people need yeah. that visual reinforcement. I never, got, I never really got the, the emotional or psychological uh, gratification or concluding closure component of seeing my mother displayed like that you know because mm-hmm. i didn't want to see her displayed like that I, that yeah. was my mother you know yeah. but i didn't have any power to say don't do that it's disgusting you know i would have preferred that she just be cremated and let's get the hell out of on with our lives and but. depending on who's doing the embalming and the makeup they could look pretty horrible yeah yeah absolutely yeah and then you're you you you, you know you talk about someone who's in a, in a car accident you know, now they, you've got, they've got facial, you know, contusions, Laceration. lacerations, yeah. disfigurement. I mean, that's a whole different, that's a whole different ball game. So, other options for internment that weren't around 30 years ago are, well, in in terms of disposition, disposition, um, you've got water-based cremation where the body is put in a tank with water and alkaline chemicals, and it speeds up. The process of decomposition to the bones into six to eight hours or two to three hours, depending on the type of system used. That's called alkaline hydrolysis or aquamation. And, and why would someone want to expedite that decomposition uses to the bones? Uses a tenth of the energy that fire-based cremation okay. uses. And some people are afraid of fire. They don't like so the idea of, of being burned that's up. That's part of Biden's new Green Deal, then? Uh, no, it's not. I'm <laughs> joking. Okay. Uh, also... Uh, Body composting is a recent development. Your body could be put into a tank with alfalfa and wood chips and other organic material, and within 30 days, it's reduced to soil amendment. Even the bones, it it all becomes a rich soil amendment. And uh, that's because the, our, our body is largely carbon and sulfur yep, and yep. Uh, other it's, and chemicals. And it's been done with cows on farms. A cow that dies, they they bury it in a pile of wood chips, and after a month, no more cow. Just so compost. that's really an interesting construct yeah. because when our body, which is organic, you know, it's made of organic elements and chemicals, mm-hmm. why not give it back to the earth? Mm-hmm. You know that expression, dust 
from dust and mm-hmm. all that. Earth to Earth, why not actually do that? And yeah. it's probably less expensive than this whole buy a million dollar coffin kind of thing, right? Yeah, it varies. Uh, the company that created it is based in the state of Washington, so it's legal in the state of Washington and Colorado. Massachusetts is looking at it, and I think Oregon has also uh, made it legal. So it's spreading. It's not here in New Mexico yet. Yeah, we're always you, last. Yeah. Yeah, we just got the miniskirt last month. So. <laughs> you can donate your body to science. I think we just got color TV a couple of months ago. <laughs> Jeffrey Candler, Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candler, my guest, uh, Gail Rubin. She's a thanatologist. We're talking about death. And uh, there's another way of disposition, which is the permanent area where the remains are. Oh, a green burial. Green burial. Okay. Yes. Uh, in Outside of Belen, there's the La Puerta Natural Burial Ground, where they don't even use markers. They they mark the burial with GPS coordinates. Uh, so if you wanted to be buried on the high prairie and um, just wrapped in a shroud or in a plain pine box with no vault or liner, uh, you can do that. I'm actually on the cemetery committee for Congregation Albert, the Reform congregation here in town. And we uh, expanded our cemetery to include a green burial area, and we just had our first green burial. And it was a rather tall man. He was dressed in uh, linen shrouds and uh, on a wicker basket tray. So the tray and the body on the tray were lowered into the grave and just covered in dirt. No, ca- no casket whatsoever. But ultimately, his organic, you know, decomposition will Nicholas really kind of just become one with be- the soil. Become one with yeah. the soil. And ashes can... to ashes, dust to dust. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I kind of, I kind of am intrigued with that. <laughs> yeah. So, talk a little bit about you. You've actually been a vanguard in spearheading this thing called a uh, cafe, a death cafe mm-hmm. movement. Yes. What is what is the death cafe movement about? So this is a movement to, that came to us from the United Kingdom. The guy just walked in the studio. It's live radio, right? Yeah. Well, go ahead. So the Death Cafe is a worldwide movement that started in the United Kingdom. A gentleman named um, John Underwood was inspired by the work of a Swiss sociologist named Bernard Cretaz who would have these little gatherings in cafes. You have a little coffee or tea, some cake or cookies, and talk about what's ever on your mind about mortality issues. Well, I found out about that in 2011 is when he started, and I held the first death cafe in the United States west of the Mississippi here in Albuquerque in September of 2012. That's kind of a a cool way of having a free-flow conversation about this thing. Kind of like what we're doing here. Right. Well, that's kind of a neat way of of just really kind of dot, just dealing with with the topic. And mm-hmm. so, do you have these like at arbitrary times, or are there? I have set them times? once a month. Uh, I had been doing them in person. We went online for the pandemic, and kind of been going back and forth. Now that the weather is getting colder, uh, I was actually holding a couple outside in historic Fairview Cemetery, but uh, talking among the tombstones. But we're uh, probably going to keep doing it virtually because it's great. I actually get people from all across the country participating in these conversations. But during the Before I Die Festival coming up October 30th to November 2nd, we're doing one each day. 
Uh, Saturday and Sunday will be in person at the Strongthorn Mortuary Reception Center. And that's a part of a full day of programming that we're doing. And then uh, Monday and Tuesday, there'll be virtual death cafes online, along with other panel discussions and presentations. Got a few minutes left with uh, Gail Rubin. She is known as the Doyen of Death, uh, a thanatologist, Jeffrey Candler, Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candler. So this thing called the Chinese virus, which really in and of itself only kills about less than 1% of uh, our population. Anyway, we have been reminded almost at exhaustion, in my opinion, about death, especially, and again, I'm editorializing, the liberal Democrats are just provoking us with fear all the time. But how has it changed either the conversation about death or you as a thanatologist over the last, it, it's two years now that we're going on this Chinese virus thing. How have you experienced the different view or conversation about this thing called death? Well, people are more aware of it. I mean, we're forced to be more aware of it. And in a way, that's a good thing. Uh, I mean, it makes you many people uncomfortable, but it's a way to start the conversation, to know that our mortality is 100%. And we're better off addressing the issues and until somebody dies, you have no concept of how convoluted the many threads of our lives can be. But if we can plan ahead at least a little bit, that's going to help our loved ones in their grief. Not if, but when there's a death in the family. Yeah. And you mentioned something earlier about social media. If someone has a Facebook page and they had, let's say, 5,000 followers, right? If the person who deceased, if the person who survived them puts out a message, oh, my husband died tragically, of course you want to let your friends and family know. But mm-hmm. you've got to also be aware of the darker side of that coin, which is now criminals know there was a death going yes. on and there's a vulnerability there. So I would say you would probably caution people to be very careful how you position and say whatever you say on social media. Kind of like if you're going on a three-week cruise, you don't tell everybody I'm leaving. Right. I'm on a three Come around my house. Right. My house is going to be vacated for three right. weeks. Come and right. you know, criminalize my house. Well, and in fact, there are ways that in the settings for Facebook that you can have a legacy contact. So if you die, that person can take over and change the setting for your account and make it a memorial account. Or they can take it down altogether. That might be the smarter thing to do. But um, each social media platform has a different process for what happens when your account is to be a legacy account or you die. Yeah. Yeah. But again, that's part of what you do to orchestrate and help guide people and and, and help them process this thing called the tragedy of death. By the way, what is your contact information, Gail Rubin? So my website is agoodgoodbye.com, and uh, the website for the festival is beforeidienm.com. If you can't attend the festival, we will have videos available at that site. Great talk with Jeffrey Kendler. got about two and a half minutes. How do you want to conclude the program? What's going to happen at the festival of, uh, of uh, Before I Die Festival? So we have fabulous speakers about a host of topics, uh, everything from estate planning 
what to do with your stuff or your loved one's stuff and the emotional involvement that we have to our the objects in our lives, uh, donating your body to science, tissue or organ donation versus whole body donation. We've got sessions about grief, sessions about um, uh, planning ahead with uh, uh, financial issues as well as estate planning issues. And it's uh, it, and for death cafes, a death cafe every day. And uh, we invite people to participate. It's by uh, a donation to register. And the links for that are at beforeidienm.com. Beforeidienm.com. Again, your contact information. Got about 30 seconds, I believe, here. Gail Rubin. My phone number is 505-265-7215. Again, 505-265-7215. There is a contact form at agoodgoodbye.com. If you want to email me, it's gail, G-A-I-L, at agoodgoodbye.com. And I'm, you know, available to help you plan ahead to visit those funeral homes and put the fun in funeral planning. And to just have a fluid conversation about this thing called called death, right? Yeah. yeah. And again, your if people want to participate, it looks like we have a little more time than I recognized here. If people want to participate in a, in a death cafe, and again, you're not being flippant about it. I mean, no, you're very no. respectful because sometimes mm-hmm. we're, even through this show, I mean, it can sound like we're being disrespectful and fl- disrespectful, flippant, but you're really a guide through this topic. And mm-hmm. it's not, you, you take it very seriously, mm-hmm. but yet you're still empathetic with your, your clients, right? Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, w- the idea is you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You don't go into the valley and sit down and stay there. So it is a process. And, we need to recognize that uh, it will happen to all of us, and it does make us more empathetic human beings if we get through it and and process it in a way that that benefits. I think it does something else. It helps us. It re-reminds us to appreciate the glory of life. Absolutely. And not to take anything for granted. Straight talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. I'd like to thank Eddie Aragon for producing the show. We're with you every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. on Kiva 1600 uh, AM Amplitude Modulation. Gail Rubin, thank you again for always being a friend and a delightful guest. Thank you, Jeff. And uh, Godspeed to everyone. Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria.